Anyways, okay. Um, I, we're we're going to talk through giving this morning. We got, I got, I got to go fast. Uh, and you've got to settle in. So I'm going to go fast. You, you settle in this morning. Um, here is the big idea out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, set your hope on God by offering him your first fruits and your best generosity. Set your hope on God by offering him your first fruits and your best generosity. First Timothy is this incredible pastoral letter from the Apostle Paul where he's writing to this young uh, pastor, a guy named Timothy, who is pastoring this church in Ephesus. It's in modern-day Turkey. At the time, it was a Roman province. <clears throat> and Paul is giving Timothy instruction on how to organize and how to pastor this church. Ephesus is it's pluralistic. Uh, it is governed by Rome, so there's all kinds of different religions and belief systems going on in Ephesus. It's on a major trade route, and it is a wealthy city. The believers in Ephesus were a small, like, really inconsequential band of people, this local church surrounded by, by pagans and people who uh, did not agree with their teachings and all of that. And there, Paul is writing to Timothy because not only do they have the issue of being pressed in on all sides by a pluralistic, secular culture, but there are also false teachers who are infiltrating this church in Ephesus, and they're coming in and they're distorting the gospel. And so right out of the gates in 1 Timothy, Paul will say, hey, watch out for false teachers because they are preaching, that what they were doing was preaching an early form of the prosperity gospel. You know these teachers, these, these Bible teachers on TV, you know, with like the gold chairs and all the nice things, and they're telling you to sow a seed, and if you'll just sow a seed, they'll pray over a napkin, and they'll send it to you, and God will bless you. That kind of stuff. Stay away from that kind of stuff. When you hear like health, wealth, and all of this, like God's going to give you that. If you just give him a little bit, stay away. That's not where I'm going this morning in this text, and this isn't where the scriptures go. These false teachers are coming into this church in Ephesus trying to get themselves wealthy off of the local believers who are there. And so Paul will, will, will give Timothy instructions on how to organize this local church, but he'll end this letter to Timothy in chapter 6 with some warnings about money and some warnings about its use and its power over the human heart. And where Paul starts in a, right around 1 Timothy 6, um, verse 6, he'll start there um, writing about the poor who don't have money. Um, they're, they're, they're folks who don't have money and they are content with what they do have. They see God as providing for them. And then he'll turn to the poor who are actually the, covet, the covetous poor, the poor who are trying to get rich, who are like, man, if I just had some more money, then I would be satisfied or, or whole or have a sense of purpose in life. Paul warns Timothy in verse 6, 6 about this allure of wealth, and this is how he does it. He says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. To pursue godliness to give our lives in generosity to God and the others around us is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us, Paul says. He appeals to nature. He says, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything else with us when we leave the world. So if we have enough 
of our needs met, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Let us be content with the way that God has provided for us. And then Paul offers this warning. He says, but, but those, those, those covetous poor who desire to be rich, what they do is they actually fall into temptation and it's serious. They fall into a snare. They're like a trapped animal who cannot get out. They fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. Paul says this famous line, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Money, the love of money is not the root of all evil. That's how some people quote it. It's not what the Bible says. It says it's one of the roots of a whole bunch of different kinds of evils, whether it's greed or whether it's power or whatever, however the love of money works itself out in a person's life, it's a root of many different evils. And Paul says it's through this craving, this craving to be rich, that some have actually wandered away from the faith. They've wandered away from the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of money holds more power over their heart than the Lord of all creation, the one who has risen from the dead. And in so doing, they have pierced themselves with many pangs. They've pierced themselves. They've harmed themselves. They're stuck. They're trapped. Pangs can be translated pains or sorrows or um, griefs or troubles. Money and wealth command the attention of our hearts in 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 a way that many other things don't. It is incredibly sneaky and incredibly powerful. My paycheck hit our bank account this last Friday, and when it hit, I breathed a sigh of relief. I, I legitimately exhaled when I saw our bank account this last week. We're, we're paying off some things, so don't think that, oh, they're in trouble. We're not in trouble. We're paying off some things, we're being, we're, and we're doing so pretty aggressively, and we're saving, and we're, like, we're, we're trying to steward um, what God has given us through you, through the church, through um, the way that I get paid. And, and yet, like, I'm, I'm kind of riding this bank account for, toward payday, um, and I don't know about you, but I, I anyways, I, I keep an eye on our accounts, the accounts that we spend out of, and when they, when, when, bank accounts start to dip below a certain line, whatever that line is for you, it's different for all of us. But when my balances get light, my stress tends to like ramp up a bit and and get a little heavier. Um, So when this payday came, I I breathed this sigh of relief. I'm like, okay, all right, we got some more breathing room. Let's go at it another month. Let's get some more uh, stuff done. And uh, this clued me in to something in a pretty fresh way. And this is what it clued me in on. My emotions tend to rise and fall in proportion to my bank balances. What about you? Emotions tend to rise and fall in proportion to bank balances. It's like my heart is stamped with in my money I trust. When my actual money is stamped within God we trust. There's like real contradiction living in in me. What about you? Where do your thoughts go when your bank balances dip? Where do your thoughts go when the well starts to dry up or look like it will? Where do your thoughts go when you hit your financial goals? Like what happens internally when you, when you hit your financial goals or when you miss your financial goals? I want to ask you to pay attention to what's going on in your body and in your mind and in your attitude when our finances do this. 
For those of you who give generously to Jesus' church, um, I wanna just ask, like, how, do you, how, how, you feel? how do you feel about it? How do you feel about that? You feel good about it? Does it give you a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning? Are you giving generously in a way that causes you to have to trust God with what you're giving? Maybe on the flip side, does it create stress in you to be giving? Do you, this is totally like, you're reading my mail, do you, do you at times daydream about what you could do with all of that money? Like there are times that I go there and I go, oh, like could do some pretty significant things with that. For those of you who don't give to your local church, either this one or another one, what is the thought of being financially generous? What does it bring forward? What does it bring up in your own emotions? Like when you think about giving your first and your best as a regular offering to God, are you open to it or do you shut down and dismiss it? I think that's an important question to answer for yourself. Uh, full disclosure, I'm... And we are really grateful for all of you who, who invest generously in the kingdom of God through this local church body. The saints have been strengthened and the saints have been refreshed by your contributions. Like, thank you. We see even this morning, like creating space for people to be discipled, for the gospel to regularly be pro- proclaimed and for new life and baptism to be celebrated this morning. We didn't put those together to manipulate you either. That was the best time that worked because last weekend was Mother's Day and Trevor had a lot on his plate the week before and so we wanted to push baptisms out and we landed them on the 21st. So um, as you, if, you're, if you're investing, as you assess how you're giving and you assess what you're giving, maybe you need to adjust. Maybe you need to adjust in one way or the other. We, I realize that life changes. So there are times like when we have to pull back, when we have to say, you know what, like in order to steward the family that God has given me and what we need um, to have roof over our head and utilities paid and cars and all that stuff is important in the society that we live in, maybe you do need to pull back or maybe you need to adjust because you don't really feel it at all. You just It's just a number that you forgot about. Paul's words to a different church, um, not to Timothy in Ephesus, but to the Corinthian church and uh, in 2 Corinthians 9 are a pretty liberating directive, actually. Uh, it'll be up on the screen. Each person, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, like not pulled back from him, not like the cults do with a rap on the door. Hey, where's the... Like that's not what we're doing around here. This is a decision between you and the Lord in your heart. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves the one who gives to the kingdom, invests in the kingdom cheerfully. And Paul says, he brings this promise with it and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all contentment in all things at all times, superlative right there, like he will content us. He wants us to abound in every good work. He wants us to use our resources for good. Now, Paul then, after um, verses 6 through 10, he tells Timothy in chapter 6, verse 11, he's like, hey, as for you, man of God, flee the love of money. And there's this powerful series of commands 
that, that come to Timothy directly in verse 11 that, that don't apply only to pastors, but they apply to all disciples. They apply to men and all men and women of God. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, but you, Timothy, you, you're a man of God, so run from these things. Run from the love of money. Run from greed. Recognize its power and persuasion over your heart. He says, instead, as a way to run from the love of money, pursue righteousness. Pursue a kind of holiness and a way of life that, that looks to Christ for satisfaction. Pursue a godly life. Pursue faith. Pursue loving the saints and loving God. Pursue persevering, even when things are hard. Pursue this fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, too. He says, Timothy, fight the good fight for the true faith. Fight for this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. It's going to be difficult to fight greed and to fight love of money in our own souls. And he says, he says, as you fight, one way that you fight is you hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. You hold tightly to all that we have in Christ Jesus and all of the ways that he cares for us. He says, Timothy, you've declared this so well before many witnesses. And I charge you, Paul writes to him, he says, I charge you before God who gives life to all people. And I charge you before Christ Jesus who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate. Jesus was in this position where he was, he was asking, Father, take this cup of wrath away from me. I don't know if I want to go through with this. And there's this point before Jesus' execution and his resurrection would come, but this point of of. of potential drawback and of failing to persevere where Pontius Pilate is questioning him. And with a word, Jesus could have just called it all off, but he didn't. He gave a good testimony and he went to the cross on our behalf. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, remember how Jesus has lived in our place. Remember the lengths that Jesus has gone to draw us in. And so you obey this command without wavering. And he says, if that's true, no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus comes again. Nobody whose opinion matters, at least. For at just the right time, Paul writes, Christ will be revealed from heaven by this, our blessed and our only almighty God, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die. He lives in light so brilliant that no human can even approach him, at least not on their own terms. No mere human eye has ever seen him, the glorified, resurrected, ascended Christ, nor ever will, no mere human. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, see to it that no one moves in on Christ's position in your life. See to it that nobody and nothing move in on the position that Jesus has in your life. Not money, not homes, not luxury items, not other people. Nothing, see to it that nothing moves in and displaces Christ from being the one that you place the full weight of your hope in. And as his ambassador, as Christ's ambassador, I'm saying to you, disciples, in the very same way, see to it that nothing moves in on Christ's position in your life. See to it that not money or homes or goods or luxury items or cars or boats or jobs or opportunities displace and move Christ 
from being the central one who you place the full weight of your hope and your life and your well-being in. Disciples, we set our hope and we set our trust in God, not in our wealth and not in our material possessions. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, as for those who are wealthy in this present age, Paul writes, charge them not to be haughty. That's a funny word. It means proud, prideful, arrogant. Charge them not to be arrogant or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Money can come, it flows, it comes and it goes out of the bank account. Does it not? There are people who have lost millions in a day. Riches are uncertainty. Instead, place your hope on God who, what? Richly provides us with some things to use at some times. That's what it says. He richly provides us to, what? All things to enjoy with everything that we have to enjoy. The New Living Translation uh, translates it like this. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our what? For our enjoyment. We wave our arrogance in God's face when we put our hope in our wealth. We wave our arrogance in God's face when we put our hope in our wealth. When my emotions drop because my bank balance dips, it is a diagnostic. It is a dashboard. Going, oh, like something's going on in me. Why my anxiety? Why my tension? Why am I so sharp all of a sudden with Meredith and the kids? What is, what is going on in me? Why I'm placing a, at least a certain portion of my hope in my actual wealth and the uncertainty of my wealth. And I, I just do want to say this. Don't be a dummy with your money, please. Like you can hear a message like this at times and feel compelled and do some odd things. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to be a steward. I'm asking you to pay your bills. I'm asking you to take care of the people in your charge. Make sure that they're fed. Make sure that they have what they need. Make sure your responsibilities and liabilities are met. We budget. We look at our finances. But we seek God and we say, Lord, what do you want me to give for the sake of the gospel? And we give him that offering. And we get him, give him that vote of confidence. We give him our worship that he is our hope before we do anything else. We give him our first off the top and our best. Jesus teaches that our hearts, we know this, our hearts follow our treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A man's life or a woman's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. When you and I invest significant money in certain things, you know this, we care about them way differently than we cared about the thing that we had before, right? So like you buy some new furniture and now all of a sudden you're seeing all the scratches and all the stains on the furniture, right? Am I the only one? Young parents, this is a bit of hyperbole, kind of, uh, but you got like three gallons of milk in that old couch from the kids, right? And you get a new couch, and now all of a sudden we're losing our mind on a few crumbs on the couch. Like, I, when, where I invest, my heart follows what I invest. Or you're investing in the stocks or crypto, and now all of a sudden you're watching this, you know, and, and it is doing something in the human heart. You buy a new car, you're getting car washes, you're starting to fret over 
whatever finds its way in your car or the soda when you slammed on the brakes that did this on the dash, that'll freak a person out for sure. Here's the reality. Our hearts follow our treasure. Our hearts follow our treasure. The very same thing happens when we invest in the kingdom of God. I'm going to be direct. The very same same thing happens to our hearts when we invest in the kingdom of God, when we fund the expansion of the gospel. When you invest in your local church, you care differently about how that church family is doing. For those of you who invest generously in all of life, you cared about the slides that were on the screen. You cared about what was coming in, what was going out. You care about the stewardship of those things. You care. If you're not given anything, you don't really care. Your heart follows your treasure. When you give to a missionary, all of a sudden you start reading those emails differently, don't you? When you give to a local ministry, you start reading those communications differently, right? When you give money and it's abused or it's stolen, it wounds you and it breaks trust. Why? Because you gave your money. Because you were a steward of that money giving it in a way that you thought would do good. And then somebody off the side grabs it and runs off with it for themselves. When you and I give our money, our our financial resources to the furthering of the kingdom of God, our hearts become more invested in the very kingdom and the very church that Jesus gave his own life for. Paul tells Timothy, he says, hey, Those who have material wealth, the rich in this present age, give them a charge. Charge them this. Don't be proud. The word charge here is this word parangelo. It can be translated, give them a command, give them direction, instruction, teach them, order them. It's like charge them. So when we take the sense of that word parangelo, charge, when we take all of these different senses of how it can be translated, when we take it all together, it becomes clear that Paul isn't telling Timothy to make a suggestion and to see how it goes. This is a command for disciples who have wealth. You and I, I, we may not be rich according to American standards, but we're wealthy according to the majority of the world. I'll give you just... a number just to like startle how well we're doing you with how well we're doing in the United States of America. If you make thirty thousand dollars a year for your entire household and you have six people in that household, uh, two adults and four kids, you are in the top seventy-five percent of eight billion people. That means you are more wealthy, you have more means than six billion people. If you make a hundred grand, you're in the top six percent. Wealthier than 94% of the world's population. Regard, and I know, like, we live in an expensive area. We live in the United States. It's expensive here. Our costs are rising here. Inflation and all that stuff. Like, it's, it's doing some stuff to our wealth. And you are, and I am, intelligent enough to realize that we do live in a prosperous society. And I trust that you are thoughtful enough to know how and to know what generosity can look like for you what generosity can look like for your household. Paul, in uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but actually set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. They are to be generous 
and they're to be ready to share. They're to have margin, not only with their finances, but also with their way of life and their time. And thus, they store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So there's something about our investment in the kingdom of God that God moves to our life with him in the age to come. This word charge, it frames everything that came in those verses that I just read. Charge them not to be proud. Charge them not to set their hopes on money and wealth. Charge them instead to set their full hope on God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Charge them to do good. Charge them to be rich in good works. Charge the disciples to be generous. Charge them to be ready to share. And as they, as disciples, as we follow this instruction, we'll experience a significant shift in our own motives and in our own hearts. What Paul does not root this command in is moralism. He's not saying do it because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't ground his charge in moralism. He roots it actually in the reality of God's character because God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God richly provides for sons and daughters. God richly um, provides for all people in his kingdom. Everything that could possibly honor God that you have ever enjoyed is a gift from him. Everything. People, wealth, homes, bikes, toys, cars, all of it, all of it is a gift. We don't come in with anything. We don't leave with anything from this material world. And here's the reality of God's character and where Paul is grounding this command here. He's saying, instead of the rich one using his riches to serve himself, God actually uses his vast riches to provide you and I with every single thing and every relationship that we have. He is a magnificent giver. He's shockingly generous and he's an abundant provider. And so the words of Paul to the church in Rome ring true. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave his own son up for us all, how will he not also with us, with him, give us, give us graciously all things? Are you listening? Are you hearing? Are you taking this in? Have I lost you? You're quiet. God's generosity to you and I isn't best revealed by the food in our bellies, by the shelter over our heads, by people in our families. And these things are all really good gifts from him to us. God's generosity and his provision is best displayed in the abundant life and the sacrificial death and the glorious and magnificent, miraculous resurrection of his son. Charles Stanley, he went to be with the Lord recently. He said this, he said, the magnitude of God's generosity is revealed in the gift of his son. He withheld nothing, sparing no expense to reconcile us to himself. Or Paul would write to the Romans in chapter five, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Timothy Keller, who just went to be with the Lord on Friday. Praise God for this man. The gift of God's Son is the epitome of divine generosity. It is a lavish display of his love and the ultimate expression of his desire for a relationship with us. Or Charles Swindoll, 
In giving us his son, God poured out his heart. He emptied heaven's treasury to show us the depth of his love and the boundless extent of his generosity. As he lived among us, Jesus' his, his whole life was filled to the brim with service. He did not come to take a hold of the American dream. He came to take hold of our debts and to give us his abundant life. That's the reality. This American dream may fail. The dream of life with Christ forever will never fail because he will not fail his people ever at any time. His life was full of good works and it's his good works that have brought us into the kingdom. They've made our rescue. They've made our peace with God possible. And you know this, we did not earn or deserve a thing, but we were, quoting Peter, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. And we weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold or a dollar bill, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without a blemish or a spot. This Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was actually made visible in the last times. He manifested as a man in the last times for the sake of you, church, through him who are believers in God. And this God raised him from the dead and gave Jesus glory. Why? Purpose clause, so that your faith and hope are in God. We set our hope on God instead of our riches because, quote, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. When you, not, not materially rich, rich in godliness, rich in satisfaction, when you and I are generous and when you and I are rich toward God, he will provide. He will provide for us in this age. He did not withhold his son. Will he not also provide us all that we need? And when you and I respond to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by being generous to his church and by funding his kingdom, there's a promise for us in the age to come as well. I want to quote a commentator, Barclay. Listen to this. We're done here. And then just a few applications. It's the last quote. Every time we could give and do not lessens the wealth laid up for us in the world to come. Every time we give increases the riches laid up for us when this life has come to an end. The teaching of the Christian ethic is not that wealth is a sin, but that it is a great, a very great responsibility. If wealth ministers to nothing but our own personal pride and enriches no one but the wealthy individual, it becomes that person's ruin because it impoverishes the soul. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Barclay writes, but if wealth is used to bring health and comfort and the gospel to others, in becoming poorer, the wealthy person actually becomes richer. In time and in eternity, in the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. These are the words of Christ himself for us. So I have a few applications uh, for us this morning, and then we'll be done making good time here. 
Number one, understand this. All that you have, this is, we gotta to understand this. All that you and I have is a gift from God. All that we have is a gift. We, you and I possess nothing. We enjoy nothing that is outside of or unrelated to the generosity of God who has created us. Here's a, an application. So understand. So work that understanding into the head and the heart. If it takes time, take time. Number two, live by the principle of giving God your first and your best. Not just a little at the end when everything is done, but at the very, like Dave Ramsey will teach you this. He's like the first line item on the budget is giving, is charity, is giving to the local church. And I want to encourage you and ask you and command, really, that you would pray and ask God for wisdom and for courage in this. Because I know I've wrestled through this in my life. And then I would say, give to the kingdom first and decide to give generously. Number three, do not neglect your bills and do not neglect your needs. Live, please, from a budget. Make that first line on your budget the line where you give to Jesus' kingdom through your local church. If you don't feel like you can trust this church, why are you here? Entrusting yourself to your, your, your soul to this community. Find a church who you trust and invest in that community. If you don't know where to start, start with 10% and try it for a couple of months. The reality of the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the tithe is, is, is done. It does not stand in the New Testament. And yet, whenever Jesus comes on the scene teaching, he's always raising the bar. 10% is a good place to start. People have studied uh, generosity and giving, kingdom giving. They, they will tell you that 10% is a good place to start. And if that is like blows up your budget and now you can't pay rent, pay your mortgage, please. Please take care of what needs to be taken care of. Try it for a couple of months. If God does not provide, test him. You have the freedom before the Lord to adjust. We don't have to like, don't make a vow. Just entrust yourself to him and then adjust where you need to. Number four, take home the booklet, Why Should I Give to My Church? It's a 30-minute read. Legit, it's this big. It's up here on the right, or on, the le- on your right. Uh, it's up here on your left. It's also in the basket on the doors out. There's probably 30 or 40 of these copies. Just grab one, read it. Number five, don't wait until you're out of debt to begin giving. This is a big question. If you've been irresponsible with your finances, the most responsible thing that you can do is to move your treasure from earthly pleasures to eternal significance. Try to outgive God. The church, this church, this community right here is filled with story upon story about how God provides. Where you spend is where your heart will move. Last, in our strong church study guides, page 26, I believe, the very end in the personal discipleship plan, fill out that line on page 26 about how you plan to give. And then don't delay. Walk forward in surrender. Walk forward in obedience. The scriptures command the people of God to be generous to the kingdom of God. My wife and I surrender our lives, surrender our finances to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Many of you in this room do, and I thank you. Many of you in this room have not yet, and I ask you to please go before the Lord, pray, ask for courage, 
and consider it. Many of you may need to adjust your giving either up or back, and that is perfectly okay. Nobody here, this is not a moralistic thing. We're not coming to knock on the door. We love you. What we want most is for your allegiance in all areas of your discipleship, including finances, to be surrendered to the Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father, help your church to know your abundant generosity. Help us to recognize it. Father, where hearts are struggling, where wounds are festering, where things are unhealed when it comes to how churches steward finances, would you heal, please? Would you bring healing? Would you take the, the, the timetable of the self-imposed pressure off of us? Would, we, would you move us in our spirits, Lord, to move toward you? and to open up our bank balances to you and to consider how you want us to contribute. Would you help us as elders to steward the money that comes in? Would you keep us from the love of money? Thank you for the way that you've provided for me and my family through all of Life Church. Thank you for the way that you provide for the Zycheks. Thank you for the way that you provide for Allison and for Tracy. Thank you. Thank you for providing for church plants. Thank you for providing and all of the, thank you for providing this building to meet in this morning. You've been so, so kind to us. We acknowledge you and we pray and we ask you to move on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.